Hey, 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 Pop Culture Quorum Deo. This is Jeff Wright for Jared Moore. Thanks for tuning in. This week we're talking about Spider-Man No Way Home. I'm here with a good doctor, Jared. How you doing, man? Doing well, buddy. Doing well. Had a good week. Yeah? You excited to talk about this movie? Oh, yeah. This was uh, this was excellent. You Enjoyed think so? It. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit because uh, if we'd have recorded right after I came out of the movie theater, I think I'd have a different take than I do now. But... On the way there, we promised y'all some of our normal segments. I'm not sure how uh, interesting I'm going to be on this, Jared, but I'm interested to hear what you've been watching. So, Jared. What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? Um, I've been watching uh, Servant with my bride. So, Apple TV, Servant, in Night Shyamalan. Uh, I think he's a producer on it. Maybe he's directed a few episodes. Um, it's got a, it does have a ton of language in it. And there's some, uh, there may be some innuendo and some other things, but, and I'm only in so far in the first season. I don't know if there's bad stuff because there's three seasons. Oh, okay. But it's one of those shows where you don't know what's going on. You think you know what's going on. And then by the end of each episode, you're clueless. Really? It's kind of like lost in that way. Oh, my stomach just turned a little. Because I'm lost. Like, I don't know what's going on. But, I think I do at the beginning of each episode. Yeah. So it's it's worth watching. Um, it's a good mystery, you know, whodunit type thing or what's going on type thing. Yeah. Um, so we've enjoyed that. And um, I, that's essentially what we've been watching here lately. I did watch Ghostbusters, like some of the special, um, you know, the extra DVD type stuff, the features. Ghostbusters Afterlife. Afterlife, yeah. Ghostbusters Afterlife. And I've enjoyed that, the Easter eggs and then the making of it and just their appreciation um, for the original. And so I've really enjoyed that. If you go on, uh, if you buy the DVD or uh, buy it online, you can get some extra features with some of those. I know you can with Apple TV, and um, it's worth watching. I mean, all of it is, the the documentary section. You probably find those videos on YouTube as well. Mm, Okay. I really enjoyed that one as well, sir. Listeners know, and I would probably enjoy that stuff too. It's nice watching a sequel where the people making it really like the franchise. Absolutely. So um, there was an M. Night Shyamalan show that came on years ago about this town out in the pines. It's like Wayward Pines or something. Do you remember mm-hmm. that show? That was Shyamalan? I thought it was. Really? And it was kind of the same deal of like, I never knew what I thought I knew when I started the episode. Mm-hmm. But I think that thing petered out. I don't know that it, yeah. it even got renewed. Yeah, I don't think it lasted. It might have been two seasons, maybe. Yeah. And I want to say I watched a couple of those episodes. Yeah. We're we're still watching Lisey's Story, which is an Apple TV product. And it's pretty high quality in terms of production value. And it's got real talent in it. And so, I don't know, maybe Apple is going to be a TV player. I'm, is that like a psychological thriller type thing? It's probably the most unique Stephen King novel I've ever read. Hmm. So, it is... About a writer who writes about uh, strange and bizarre worlds and who's very successful. Don't know if that sounds like anybody to you. Hmm. It's about his wife and uh, dealing with life after he dies. And then there is all that's like in the first episode. So there's no spoilers. Or if you read the dust jacket to the book, it's all in the dust jacket. And then it's about some, and this is as far as I'll go with spoilers, really out there supernatural stuff. Hmm. So Sounds uh, intriguing. a friend from high school who we kind of bumped into each other and we're talking about 
my love for horror and this person loved uh, Stephen King stuff. And they said, have you read Lisey's story? And they gave me a copy, like a little paperback. Mm-hmm. It's a thick book, good read, and uh, clearly has something to do with who Stephen King is as a person. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, it's been a pretty faithful adaptation. I may check that out. Yeah, we finished Murders in the Building. That was a really, uh, really interesting series. It's clearly going to be renewed for another season, and I'm not sure I'm interested in the next season. Uh, basically, the premise of that is there in the title. There's a murder in this big New York apartment building that three fra- uh, excuse me, three fans of true crime podcasts begin investigating. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty interesting. Steve Martin is really good in it. Martin Short is really good in it. But they did. Like the second season, they've said they're going to go big and really dig into the backstory of the female uh, character. And I'm okay with digging into her backstory, but like the appeal of the movie was they're investigating a murder in their building. Or sorry, mm-hmm. the appeal of the series. I don't know that I want it to turn into a globe trotting adventure, you know? Sure. But it was good. The first season was good. It's definitely worth watching. Same deal. There's some bad language. There's like intimations of sexual activity, but I don't think they show anything at all. It's kind of fade to black. And mm-hmm. Steve Martin is just really, really fun to watch act. Uh, the the lady who played Holly in The Office, Michael Michael's love interest, mm-hmm. she comes in late in the season. And so there's some good stuff going on there. Okay. The best thing I have seen since we recorded last, I think, or at least the last time we had a What You Watching is American Underdog, the Kurt Warner biopic. Mm-hmm. And, man, I loved everything about that movie. Uh, I can't remember if we've talked about it on the podcast before, but it is a much must-watch, and I think I will buy that thing to be able to have in the house. Cool. I haven't watched a truly good sports movie in a long time. The closest is Ford versus Ferrari. Mm-hmm. And that's not really, a, you know, when I'm, in my mind, a racing movie is not exactly a sports movie. And this was just a really, really good sports movie. So hmm. I was delighted by it. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Watch anything else? No, that's, that, I mean, that's pretty much it, man. I mean, I watched Encanto. Yeah. We've, we've been running a lot with basketball. Yeah. We've been, we've talked about Encanto. You have not been running a lot. <laughs> that is not true. You've been going to basketball Driving. games. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll put a bow on. What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? Got anything for? So sorry to interrupt. No, no, no hot topics really. Okay, you could. Uh, I mean, you could share your view of uh, women fighting in MMA. Oh yeah. Do you? You want to pick a fight about that? That'd be a fun little debate to sure. have. Sure. Sure. Uh, I think ontologically women should not fight in mixed martial arts. Mm-hmm. And I basically make the same argument that I would make for women's, women serving in active combat. Mm-hmm. I think that women are made to nurture and to uh, grow things. And I think it is contrary to their character to put them in combat or death dealing scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, mixed martial arts, I don't think are as far afield from the nature of woman as active combat is because there are scenarios where a woman would be pressed into fighting. You know, the the mama bear motif exists for a reason. Mm -hmm. But I also think that when that happens, because it is contrary to their nature, it should be seen as, uh, and it actually does work out this way, 
um, things get pretty wild when that happens, right? Like you, I think this is seen stuff like when you were in middle school or high school, mm-hmm. when girls fought, it was always brutal compared to the way guys fought. Guys had a um, a sense of limit when they would fight in the hallway. Unless this is, you know, some young man who was truly barbarous. But when I would watch the young ladies fight that we would have in public school, those literally turned into like bloodbaths with hair being pulled and teeth coming out. I remember watching a girl drag another girl's face down a row of lockers. Um, I'm not surprised by that as an adult looking back on what I think women are made for. And so women going into combat is sort of a... uh, uh, sorry, in in physical combat in that way, I think probably is uh, snapping of a last defense mechanism. And so it's appropriate for them to kind of go buck wild because hmm. they're made as a last line of defense. So but based on that, based on that, uh, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said, but it, it, it's the application of it. Um, I mean, I agree that women should not be in combat. It should be men who go and defend. Um, and I, I'm not going to give my daughter to that. But what you've said, though, would that not apply to all sports? I don't think every sport is as necessarily agonistic as hand-to-hand combat or boxing would be another. Uh, I think a woman playing – I mean, I'll just be honest. I'm on a spectrum here. A woman playing tennis mm-hmm. is probably, in my system, more palatable than a woman playing rugby. What about nurturing, though? Like, if the if they are the nurturers, how does sports lend itself to that when the central nature of it is competitive? Well, when it when it when it is a sport, and I'll just freely own, I can't give you an objective line. You know, right. I have seen women play basketball in a way that I think is very feminine, and I've seen people play women play basketball in a way that I think is contrary to femininity. So, like, I can't give you a hard line, which I'm sure is dissatisfying to a lot of people who hear me say this. But, um, I'm, I mean, I would basically start at tennis is not contrary to women's nature mm-hmm. and therefore may be enjoyed as a recreation. Whereas I think hand to hand combat is contrary to a woman's nature mm-hmm. and therefore should not be, you know, uh, should not be enjoyed or participated in, I guess. Mm-hmm. So what about like, or would there be degrees of that? So jujitsu rolling around, wrestling, um, things like that would be permitted. Yeah. I mean, this is where my, the, I, I'm very confident in my position, but it is, I just have to it's own. a conscience thing. Probably. Well, I just have to own, I don't think it is a conscience thing. That's the deal. Like I, <coughs> I wouldn't argue it as if it's just a conscience thing, mm-hmm. but I think nailing down where it moves from appropriate to inappropriate is an obvious problem for me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just have to own that. Um, mm-hmm. that being said, Jiu-jitsu seems much better to me for a woman to practice than boxing. Mm-hmm. So like a defensive, uh, moving a person where you want them, defending yourself well. Uh, my limited understanding of jiu-jitsu seems much more consistent with that. And I would even say it's wise for a woman to know how to defend herself. Mm-hmm. So like training to protect yourself, I think is a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. but actively for the entertainment of others engaging in, I, you know, I don't want to call it human cockfighting, but I think it's okay to call it blood sport. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is off the bounds. So like, you know, my wife 
this isn't a danger, but my wife or my daughters come to me and say, I want to be a mixed martial artist. I'm, you know, that's not going to happen. But I would be like, you know, you may be able to learn how to control your body, um, defend yourself, mm-hmm. enjoy the benefits of physical uh, exercise. Maybe we'll look at a jujitsu studio for you. Right. But I would not, I wouldn't do anything that seemed to be pushing her towards taking an, an aggressive posture towards other women mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of taking an aggressive posture towards other women or being incentivized to do that mm-hmm. rather than doing as a defensive thing. Okay. Um, so my, my thoughts are that one, in order to be competitive, you have to have some form of aggression and aggressive mm-hmm. posture towards whoever your opponent is, whether it's monopoly or MMA. Now, obviously there are degrees, right? Um, to where you're actually physically punching someone or rolling with someone. And I, I would be against, uh, well, I am against uh, women fighting men or even rolling with men. Sure. I um, wouldn't be a fan of that either. Any form of wrestling or um, because you, you know, men harming women, which is often what happens. I mean, you've seen, if you've watched any of these uh, wrestling matches, you know, um, or seen any highlights of them, it, it is, does not end well for these young ladies that are wrestling these men in high school and middle school and um uh, I don't think that that should happen at all. Sure. Um, but as far as women being competitive with other women um, in a strategic rift, um, and it is, I mean, it is obviously, uh, when you say it, it's violent. I mean, it is violent. Um, but I don't think that that is in, inherently sinful. If we're going to permit, um, I mean, would there ever be any sparring? Or, I mean, how are you going to learn how to defend yourself without any sparring? Or um, and then arguing that uh, that if someone is entertained by that or entertained by a fight or entertained, um, you know, I I'm, I'm hesitant there, hesitant to draw hard and fast rules. But part of that is me growing up and my sister um, being at Jack Scott's karate studio sure. and coming home after. Well, actually, she beat boys um, in. You know, kicking in the whatever you kick. I don't know what all the rules were, but it's a point system. And you I think had, you, you kick butt is yeah, actually what you kick. You had these helmet things on and pads and stuff. It was a point system. It's kind of like Karate Kid. Okay. You know, but she'd come home with these trophies that were taller than me. Yeah. And and also black eyes. You know. Yeah. Where uh, she'd been hit. Um, and so I I would be again. I'm against that male female fighting, but. But even that, even women sparring in those karate type competitions where it's point based, um, I don't think that that's inherently sinful or inherently contrary to nature. Um, well, just off the top of my head, thinking through these things you're throwing at me, I would be more comfortable with a point based sparring system than I would actually physical. Then a give up, like like you give up, subdue, or the ref calls it. Yeah, yeah. Now, so that's that's where I can be like. Sane enough to acknowledge where my position is squishy, right? But I mean, I'll just tell you, man, and I don't mean, I don't know that this is your conclusion, but it, it probably is somebody listening to us. Mm-hmm. I think being entertained by women fighting in active combat is a sign of perversity and degradation. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a place where our culture shows that we have too low a view of women, too low a view of men, and a willingness to engage in things that are shameful. Like, I don't think. Uh, just to go, and, and here's the thing: I don't think every man who disagrees with me is self consciously here. I'm just saying, generally, societally, I think this mm-hmm. is it. 
I don't have a lot of different reaction when I think about women fighting in mixed martial arts than I do think about women participating in porn. I think it's a, uh, I think it's an assault on feminine dignity. And so I'm pretty, you know, the, the guy who comes in and says, I love watching Gina Carano. I mean, I don't know who the people are now. I just know Gina was one of the yeah. other cyborg. I'm going to look at that brother and I'm going to, I'm going to think if he's under my pastoral care or whatever, I'm going to think I need to do some work in your discipleship. Mm -hmm. So I have pretty strong convictions about that stuff. I do not. I mean, if I had the switch, I would shut down the entire Binks martial arts, women's industry Mm -hmm. or women's boxing. I would shut that down. Interesting. Um, Because I think uh, in those categories, now women doing a karate kid, point scoring system doesn't seem aimed at violation of a woman's nature. It seems more like the competition is about meeting a goal rather than subduing another person. And you're right to identify like the aggression issue there as, as one of the cruxes of where this comes down. But I would say that I am not uh, at least just kind of talking about it right now with you. I don't see a problem with women showing aggression. I think there are times when women should show aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, another woman is flirting with your spouse and trying to get his attention. Um, uh, a negative influence is trying to position themselves in your child's life. Um, I mean, someone, I don't know, someone is bringing uh, false teaching into the women's group that you're a part of at your church. I think women should be appropriately aggressive there. So I, I don't think that aggression is what makes it on or off the table. There's something about the violent subduing of another person, I think, is kind of where my instinct is saying the problem is. Gotcha. So I, w- I would describe that how we described uh, other sports, um, whether it's a point system or it's um, putting someone in a chokehold until they tap out. And I know you're drawing a stark contrast between those two things, but both the end goal, if the end goal is violence, if the end goal is to harm, to maim, it is sin. If the goal is to win with the the least damage to yourself and to your opponent, which I think would be a Christian approach to boxing, the goal is not to end a career or, you know, male or female. The goal is to, well, strategic. There's so much strategy that goes into it. Um, well, and that point, the strategy, is what I actually like about boxing and mixed martial arts. I'm fans of those sports. Mm-hmm. And I don't enjoy seeing someone's, you know, slobber get knocked across yeah, the yeah. But I do appreciate the way that uh, it, it doesn't make for great fights. But like Roy Jones, you know, that guy knew everything to do in a ring to take as little damage as possible and come out a victor, right? So, like, I can respect that as a strategist. But man, it, I mean, it just, it viscerally shocks me to think of a woman thinking about how to do damage to another opponent, even if it's in, let's do the least amount of damage. I no. don't think that's what a woman is made for. I think that's a gear she has that's supposed to be kind of a last resort. Mm-hmm. And I want to protect that. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's interesting. Yeah. Make it, giving me pause, making me think more about it because I haven't seen anything wrong. I think... I think the worst thing about MMA concerning women is the ring girls. Not the women in the ring, but the women outside the ring who are prancing around. I would suggest those things are pretty closely related. See, I don't think so. It's it's similar to watching any sport, watching any sport where women are involved competitively against others. Whether, I mean, if you're talking about um, flag football or 
Um, I mean, any, any like basketball, soccer, um, I mean, just enjoying, uh, competitiveness and God given athleticism. And, you know, I mean, I know there's, we can talk about what men and women are designed for distinctly. Um, but if sport is an objective good, right? which I agree, and I think sport is, is good. And the game is objective good. Um, I think we have to, if we're going to say that women can't do MMA or they can't because of um, subduing one's opponent, uh, we I, I don't know that the hard and fast rule can be drawn between that and other sports. Well, let me th- let me throw something into the hopper that may or may not affect the way you're thinking about this. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So I was listening to Doug Wilson talk about uh, gender distinctives. Mm-hmm. And he made a point that I thought was really interesting. He said, and it seems obvious when you say it, but I hadn't thought of it before. He said that sex is not the same thing for a man and a woman. That there is not, I mean, I'm putting words in his mouth in this way, but like sex is not something that a man accesses and a woman accesses, but that fundamentally a woman has sex with a man and a man has sex with a woman. That's God's design. And that means even though we use one word to describe it, those are very fundamentally (laughs) easy for me to say. Um, Irrevocable money. There you go. Thank you. Uh, Experiences that are necessarily different. Mm -hmm. So even though we're participating in, in in an act together, we're using similar language to describe it. The experience of the people doing it is a deeply gendered experience that cannot be replicated by the other person. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think that concept has usefulness in other arenas. So like, I don't know that men and women play sports the same way. I think when I think about what justifies or or why sports is an objective good to use the language you've used, we've used on the podcast Mm -hmm. is because for a man, it cultivates uh, masculine traits in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. So competition, aggression. uh, I mean, I think there's a real sense in which some sports are literally just training for war. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think men participate in sports in that way. I don't know that women participate in sports that way. Mm -hmm. I think that we're so uniquely distinct in our genders that there probably is. It wouldn't surprise me if I could somehow enter into a woman's brain. It wouldn't surprise me, for instance, that like for her, the community nature of a team environment Mm -hmm. is much more central in her experience. Even as a guy who has enjoyed being on teams, right? Yeah. Or the way she enjoys the community of the team that would be very different from me. And so there's something there, I think, that applies that like I can affirm the goodness of a man going into a boxing ring that I can't with, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali's daughter Mm -hmm. that I could with Muhammad Ali. But that also allows me to think that a women's softball team is not contrary to feminine nature in the same way. Mm-hmm. That that there's something about being a woman that can participate in that in a way that, you know, a man can be doing all the same stuff on his softball team, but it's still a very different gendered experience and in a mm-hmm. way that doesn't contradict what a woman's made to do as a life giver and gotcha. a beautifier. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Uh, listener, look, I'm, I've either made you really mad or... Send your hate mail to yeah, and Jeff Wright. I'm getting a lot of it right now. <laughs> merely so, Jeff Wright. Uh, that yeah. one is merely Jeff Wright at your Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of that. So if I don't hear you initially, you may need to like add some salty language or something to distinguish yourself. 
Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk through this. <laughs> you know, these are convictions that I hold and that I think I have good reasons for. Sure. But uh, obviously they're not completely fleshed out and I'm, yeah, I'm open to being told. I I'm need wrong. to wrestle with it more too. Um, but uh, good thoughts. All right. Thanks. Appreciate that. All right. That will do it for. So sorry to interrupt. So let's get into this movie, Jared Moore. We're talking about, I mean, really, this is the first true blockbuster since COVID hit. Yeah, yeah. And depending on what you think about Disney and their direction with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is the movie that is going to give them the money to do whatever they want to do from here on out. Mm-hmm. So, of course, listener, we're talking about this year's blockbuster, Spider-Man No Way Home. It's made all the money. Uh, I think several weeks ago, it was at 1.5 something billion. Oh, my goodness. Uh, on a budget of about 200 million. So, wow. Disney has restocked their coffers for whatever they want to do from here on out. Right. Which I'm assuming means a lesbian <laughs> Thor. I, mean, I seriously, I, I assume a lesbian. gay super. Well, no, that's DC. Yeah. <laughs> I, I seriously think we'll be seeing a lesbian Thor at some point. So, all that money is coming from Spider-Man No Way Home, which I greedily went to see and took my kids to see as well. So I've got uh, I've got moral guilt on my hands. <laughs> that sounds too pessimistic. I really enjoyed watching this movie. I think you did too. Yeah, it was a great movie. And uh, that being said, listener, we're going to give you the IMDb summary, and that's going to be your uh, that's going to be your sign that you're in spoiler territory. So anything from there after, just going to give away plot details. If you don't want that to happen. Pause the episode here, go watch the movie, come back and pick back up with us. So, Jared, what does, uh, what, what's a good summary for Spider-Man No Way Home? So, IMDb says, with Spider-Man's identity now revealed, Peter asks Doctor Strange for help. And when a spell goes wrong, dangerous foes from other worlds start to appear, forcing Peter to discover what is truly what it truly means to be Spider-Man. Okay. Okay. Good summary. Nothing I would... Uh... I'd alter there. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, we didn't do this with Encanto, I think, because it's an animated movie. But what conscience issues would No Way Home present to a, a ah, Christian? They, there's language and there's a little innuendo. Yeah. There's some pretty, you know, rough violence. like, And there's murderous desires that are unjust desires that are expressed by both uh, the villains and Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. Revenge, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's shown in the right light, right? But it, but actually seeing it portrayed like, you know, if Spider-Man wasn't stopped, he would have murdered Norman Osborn. Is that his name? Norman Osborn. Norman Osborn. Two things I'd throw in the hopper. One, I think this is distinct with Spider-Man. When you go to the movies, do you notice that there are more trailers than there used to be? Or do you think it's the same amount and I just haven't been in movie theaters in a long time, so it feels like there's more? I think there's about the same. Okay. And for blockbusters, there's a ton, like 10 or something. Yeah. Well, that that's very much what this felt like. And I, I also felt like there were trailers attached to this movie that were out of step with what the, uh, what the content of the film and the rating of the film would warrant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I took a bunch of my kids with me. Um, and the movie was entirely appropriate, I think, for their age range. Mm-hmm. But the Morbius trailer at the beginning, I don't think was. Yeah. And the Kingsman trailer, I don't think was. Definitely, yeah. And so I don't know that I'm really picking up on a change, but I can see a scenario where Hollywood is so desperate to get eyes on upcoming movies to draw people out. 
that they've just attached everything they can to Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like now it's something I've got to think through another layer of like, if I'm taking my family to the theater, right? Like maybe I ought to take a look at what trailers are attached to it before wow. I go. That's crazy to have to think through that. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, there's just one scene that particularly drives me crazy in Homecoming, or No Way Home, excuse me. Uh, I get why they think it needs to happen in a teenage movie. But there's a scene where Peter has scrambled back to his apartment with MJ. She's helping him change out of his costume. Happy and Aunt May are coming down the hallway, and we hear Peter and MJ talking through the bedroom door. And it's, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. I'm, basically, I think it's, I think strongly it's supposed to intimate that they are about to have sex for the first time. And uh, then Aunt May opens the door. Peter's there in his boxers. MJ's hands are on him because she was helping him change or something. And they immediately go into, this is not what it looks like and whatnot. And like, I just didn't, I mean, I get why people in Hollywood making a movie about teenagers would play that joke, but I didn't think it was needful. I didn't think it was helpful. I wish they'd left it out. Right. I agree. So those are the two things I had in mind for spoiler issues. Yeah. Conscious. I mean, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, conscious. I can't get my head straight. You got me, uh, <laughs> I'm still thinking about women fighting. <laughs> <laughs> happy, happy to do that for yeah, you. appreciate it. That's All right. right. So creation, fall, redemption, glorification. You want to go through those? Yeah, I mean... First thought on creation is just that it's kind of the genius of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they don't shy away from clear lines of morality. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons they've been very successful compared to DC. DC wanted to make everything morally muddy, and you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe doesn't always have the right moral calibration, mm-hmm. but they know they're in a moral, mythological tale. Mm-hmm. And so bad guys here, bad guys in the sense that they're a real threat to people. Um, Spider-Man's job is to go around and help people who are weaker than him against threats that are more powerful than him. Now, I think when we get into fallenness here, I think some of that's un- undone by the way the movie plays out, hmm. which is a criticism. But creationally, it's still a moral universe, and that's increasingly rare in our culture stories. And so mm-hmm. I'm thankful for that. So, yeah, I, creation is essentially our world, you know. It's supposed to be modern day. And then, so fall happens when responsibility and accountability are not applied by and to uh, people with power. Hmm. And then redemption happens when power is taken away and the powerful take responsibility and have accountability. Hmm. And then glorification happens when those in power take responsibility and are held accountable. Okay. So the way I see that is like uh, Peter... Uh, you know, where, where when you have great power, you have great responsibility. Is is kind of the I would say the thesis of um, the movie and the villains. It's not the issue is um, they have not been held accountable or take responsibility for the power they have. They have wielded it in wicked ways, or they have the power has overtaken them to where they're no longer volitional subjects um, with dignity and value. And so, well, actually, they do still have dignity and value. Um, but, uh, the answer to that is actually taking the power away, hmm. which I thought was, uh, thought was an interesting take. Like these the arguments kind of, these men are essentially good men. If you take their powers away, they'll, they'll, they'll be good men again. And, um, I don't think that, I mean, essentially the way you save someone is to take their power away. Hmm. Um, you know, the, 
in this movie, except for Spider-Man. And, and what how he's different from those others is that he does take responsibility and he has accountability. Um, and so that accountability stops him from exercising his power to murder Norman Osborn towards the end of the movie. Another Spider-Man, who is his equal, um, stops him from carrying it out. And so that's why he can have power uh, and the others can't. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting, Jared. You've thought about it from an angle I haven't. I do think, you know, if it's about power and using it responsibly, it is an indictment of everybody on the good guy team in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm-hmm. You know, the I, I probably said it on the podcast when we reviewed Doctor Strange way back at when, that clearly Doctor Strange was just Tony Stark with magic instead of tech. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But I didn't realize at that time the Marvel Cinematic Universe was just going to swap them one for one. You know, I don't know if you hung around for all the end credits, but at the end of Spider-Man No Way Home, it had that Doctor Strange will return text on the screen that used to be reserved for Iron Man. Hmm. I didn't catch that. Yeah. And so Tony was Peter's mentor, the guy he ran to when things got tough, got help from right now it's Doctor Strange. And the fact that Doctor Strange was willing to contemplate altering all of reality to help Peter deal with some, like, bad consequences starts to make the use of power for selfish ends, you know, in a way that shows accountability to uh, guiding principles Mm -hmm. look a lot more shady. You you know what I mean? Sure, yeah. And... uh, even Peter jumps into that because as Peter, I don't know that Peter went to him thinking he would change the universe forever, mm-hmm. although he may have had some sense of that. But as like the spells being cast, Peter keeps trying to throw in little incentives for himself. You know, like mm-hmm. how do I how do I specifically want to calibrate reality to precisely what I want? And that's a really selfish use of power. Sure. And so now that you've framed it that way... Uh, I'm taking another look at the even the moral framework of the movie, you know. Mm-hmm. But then by the end, he undoes all that. And so maybe it's a declaration of this is where selfishness leads. This is where um, unaccountable power leads. Yeah. Messes up the universe. Messes yeah. up everybody. He so. clearly comes to see that this was a bad choice and that the only way to try to undo the consequences for others is to take them on himself. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad to go. Is it? It's sort of an epiphany movie, maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to meet you there. We'll see, though. Like, how where they go from here, right? Yeah, and it's some of the stuff is just, it's just dumb. I mean, I guess this is as good a time to mention as anything. But like, when I first went to watch Spider Man No Way Home, I was over the moon, right? Mm-hmm. And having thought about it longer and chewed on it more, I don't hate the movie. I'm still a fan, but like. I see more holes than I did. Mm-hmm. And so here's here's a theory that I pitched to some of our friends online that I'm going to just throw to you initially. When I came out of Rise of Skywalker, I was similarly over the moon, just so excited to see a film that like tried to fix what The Last Jedi messed up, clearly didn't hate the Star Wars universe and characters. And so I came out just delighted. But I think my delight in that movie was largely because it wasn't The Last Jedi rather than it was just a good movie. Mm-hmm. And it, these, you know, these years after that film, I'm now at a point where like, I mean, Rise of Skywalker was good, but I wish those movies hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't think that's where I'm getting to with Spider-Man. But I think the reason I loved Spider-Man No Way Home initially is that it was a whole bunch of Spider-Man stuff that had nothing of a woke cultural agenda being slammed down my throat. Mm -hmm. And it probably raised my estimation of the movie 30%. Mm -hmm. I look back on it now, and I think the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie is my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, Where I would have come out of that theater saying, this is the best Spider-Man movie that ever been made. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the first Tom Holland Spider-Man movie is the best of this trilogy. Mm -hmm. And so... You've got things like that where now the universe is broken, right? Um, there was a spell cast at the end of the movie that's supposed to fix everything, where everybody forgets about uh, Peter Parker being Spider-Man, right? Mm-hmm. But does MJ remember? She would remember Spider-Man because those are distinct personalities. Does MJ remember herself being swung around New York as a love interest, like being in love with the person who's in the Spider-Man costume? Yeah. Or if you think about, this impacts other realities, right? Mm-hmm. So in the multiverse, we've seen Into the Spider-Verse, or maybe you read those comics when they came out. There in the multiverse are countless Peter Parkers who were happily in love with Mary Jane mm-hmm. or Gwen Stacy or whatever that just all went away because Tom Holland's version needed to get his MJ into MIT. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, even, you know, when they talk about, like, what's going on with his relationship with MJ and his world, Tobey Maguire says it's complicated. But there seems to be some relationship there. Mm -hmm. She now no longer knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man because these spells affect the multiverse. Yeah. And it just seems like lazy plot contrivances to create a big jumble of of cool-looking stuff for Spider-Man to fight. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, like, as someone who wants an internally consistent story, I think that matters. I don't know how they, I don't know what you do now, unless you just now then pretend like the multiverse doesn't really exist mm-hmm. and we don't have to worry about, you know, the, the Tobey Maguire character that we were all delighted to see come back. Or to be, if you want to strive after consistency, he's going to come back and be ticked at Peter. Uh, our Peter Parker, right? And mm-hmm. now you're going to create a whole bunch of enemies who are going to be like, dude, I was a good guy. You just rained chaos into my life, took away the most important relationship in my life. I'm coming to kick your butt for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So It's interesting, yeah. I'm sorry. I know that was a long tangent, but coming out of that movie, I was like, woohoo, Spider-Man, not woke. This is great. And now I think, well, if I'm going to watch an MCU movie again, this may not have worked out really well. Yeah. So, Good call. Yeah, I hadn't thought about how it affected the multiverse. Um, so flipping switches a little bit. Uh, which Spider-Man are you? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, they kind of put it on the nose, and this is the charm of the movie. They the writing in terms of uh, one-liners and whatnot is really great. Mm-hmm. So when they're standing around and they ask Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, "Are you going to?" be dressed up like the cool youth pastor. You know, I mean, I'm the old dude. I'm the guy who'd be stretching and, and his back would be popping and stuff. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Uh, but there is a sense, I think, in which you're, whoever is Spider-Man, it's like the SNL cast thing we've talked about. Whoever was on Saturday Night Live when you were in high school is probably still your favorite SNL cast. Mm-hmm. Tobey Maguire is probably still my favorite Spider-Man. But man, this movie rehabilitated Andrew Garfield for me. Mm-hmm. Um 
I'd love to talk about that more, but I don't want to get away from the original question. I think Toby Maguire has been the best Peter Parker over the arc of a lifetime. Mm. Tom Holland has been the best young teenager Spider-Man. And Andrew Garfield is kind of his own thing there. So, what about you? Yeah, I'm thinking Tom Holland, mainly because of his uh, participation in the Avengers and Mm -hmm. his relationship with Tony Stark and just all that as far as almost like a father figure and his his death at uh, Infinity War and then him coming back, that reunion in sure. Endgame. And, um, I mean, it's arbitrary, but, you know, I just really, I think he's, they're all good actors. Yeah. And, and I loved, I loved the Spider-Man cartoon, you know, mm-hmm. the 90s cartoon. Yeah, man, that was good stuff. And, Fox Block, yeah. Yeah, And yeah. that and the X-Men and mm-hmm. I think maybe The Tick were like three major superhero franchises yeah. right there that were done really well. And uh, and so I, I mean, I love the original Spider Man with uh, McGuire. So I would rank them: um, Tom Holland, McGuire, and then Garfield. Yeah, I mean that's probably my rank flipping Holland and McGuire. Yeah, uh, but Holland has every potential. It's just that we saw Tobey Maguire, and and the third movie was a disaster. Yeah, but we saw Tobey Maguire's version do what happened at the end of this one, only in a way that was probably even more consequential. Mm-hmm. You know, he told his MJ, I don't want to be with you because it's dangerous for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And and walked away in that way. Um, this one has the benefit of her not living in broken hearted alienation from him. Yeah. Garfield's uh, did that with his Gwen as well. Her dad said when he realized he was Spider-Man, said, don't involve my daughter. And like, basically the second movie is all about him wrestling with I love Gwen. I do want her in my life. I'm going to have to break my promise to her dead dad. Hmm. And then she gets killed. Oh, wow. Um, and so I think, I think honestly, the, the first two franchises did something that was much more sophisticated. And hmm. um, they didn't do the superhero spectacle as well. Although the second, the Garfield series tried, you know, it looks like the new Spider-Man Sony video games, mm-hmm. but um, they didn't do it as well as these MCU ones did, but they did like human dynamics probably better. Hmm. And uh, I used to really dislike the Garfield movies. This one has fixed this. I see him now as charming and his sense of humor is really uh, compelling. Mm-hmm. I really do believe, uh, this may be another one of my long rants, but. I do believe that it's basically the brutal death of Gwen Stacy at the end of the second one that uh, is entirely faithful to the comics. That's how it played out historically in the comics. That just kind of made me dislike those movies. Mm. And I now see, like, if we'd had a third one, you might have had a really powerful trilogy. Yeah, I, I mine's more arbitrary than that, less sophisticated. I just think Garfield's emotion bothers me. His, uh, you know... I don't know, too sorrowful, less tough, I, I feel, for Spider-Man to actually yeah. do what he has to do. It is much sense? more emo, for sure. And uh, I mean, I, obviously you'd be emotional, but um, I don't know. It just seems he wears his emotion on his sleeve in a way that I don't know how you, you're Spider-Man and do that. Like Tobey Maguire did, and he's ready to enact revenge, Tom Holland the same way, but Andrew, or, you know, Garfield's different. He's He's... Not vengeful, which I, I think the most visceral reaction would be initially revenge, right? You yeah. would be battling that. It wouldn't be, uh, and he's the one who actually, 
And maybe that's why he actually lost someone. Yeah, he and, suffered and the has, greatest loss. And has dealt with it and, yeah. and understood, you know, that vigilantism is not the go, you know. Yeah, and that revenge won't offer you what you think it will. Right. Um, the the other thing about this movie, so the, I'm going to talk about a lot of weaknesses in this sure. movie, but I think it matters, particularly to this point you're saying, it matters that Uncle Ben was killed in the origin story mm-hmm. for both of those characters in a way that Aunt Mays doesn't quite satisfy. Mm-hmm. So like Tobey Maguire, 10 days into his Spider-Man career, knows that lesson. That revenge is not going to satisfy me, right? Like, mm-hmm. he knows what it is to fail to let the thief get by him and kill Uncle Ben. He knows what it is to track that guy down and realize if I kill him, I'm no better than him and this is not going to satisfy me. He has to live with guilt and learn those lessons, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is not what's happening for uh, Tom Holland because Uncle Ben is gone, And I appreciate initially that we didn't kind of go back through the Ben dying storyline because we'd seen it so recently. Mm -hmm. But I now hate that we're not going to get Ben in any sense and that May steps in to that role. Mm -hmm. May was always Peter's in the comics and in the traditional telling. She was his moral center. Mm-hmm. You know, she was the thing that kept him grounded as your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man because he's basically always grandma's kid taking care of grandma. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's all gone now. When you have hot Aunt May who um, does the Uncle Ben thing without Uncle Ben, you've not only lost the moral lessons that she brings or, or maybe you get a version of that, but then you lose the moral center on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's good for the character. And so I'm frustrated by that. Yeah, I can say that. Yeah, I I don't think it bodes well for him long term. He's a different guy. The the classic Spider-Man is going to an aged woman for a moral perspective grounded in wisdom. Mm -hmm. This guy is going to, you know, for a while, an aunt who was kind of like a member of the Friends cast who was also taking care of her kid. Yeah. And who does he go for? Moral guidance and wisdom, Tony Stark and Anthony Strange or whatever Dr. Strange, you know, real name is. Mm -hmm. That's a really different character Mm. and it's going to change things for him. Good call. Um, So do you want to talk about what's true and beautiful or or do you want to go into the fall? What what, I mean, is there anything holding on to you for true and beautiful here? I mean, just love for family, love for friends. You know, I question trying to heal those who have... um, no power, well, no power over their actions. So I think out of all the the uh, characters, the foes, the villains, um, that only Octavius is the one who has no moral culpability for, because the AI totally takes over him, takes over his brain. Well, this is this is exactly what I want to talk about in fallenness. And so, if you want to have that conversation, let's hold it for just a minute. Yeah. Okay. The the only the only true good and beautiful thing I've seen here that hasn't been addressed. It's just that relationships matter, Mm -hmm. you know, like um, him loving MJ well and taking care of her matters. His friendship with Ned matters. Those are good things. Yeah, absolutely. They kind of get washed away in the end. Yeah. And, and, and even in comparison to being able to go to Dr. Strange and say, alter the cosmos, but that's basically the core of who Spider-Man is still. Mm -hmm. And that's good. I think that's my kids were yelling. Like at the end of the movie, Ava, my daughter kept saying, he lied to MJ. Yeah. He lied to Ned. 
like uh, that's what they she's so angry even today like months later if she talks about that movie that's what she remembers well dude let's let's get into that too whenever you want to because it replicates probably the worst decision the property owner uh, marvel ever made with Mm spider-man and i don't know why they haven't undone it i don't know why they keep doing it it's the stupidest thing in the world Mm -hmm. so we'll get to that yeah let's go let's go ahead if you're ready yeah what's distorted Evil, false. So the most evil and distorted and false thing here is that no bad guy is a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they're all victims. And it's the it's this bizarre cultural schizophrenia we live in, right? Who's a bad guy? It's the guy who got in a, uh, a SUV and drove it into a parade is not a bad guy in their world. He's a victim, hmm. right? Yeah. So no bad guys are bad guys. They're all victims, except who's the bad guy? It's the guy who says there's a moral standard mm-hmm. that says there are some people who are good guys and some guys who are bad guys. I mean, it's just pure cultural schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And so my wife, who y'all have heard me reference and has been a guest on the podcast before, immediately viscerally hated that mm-hmm. aspect of this film that you brought up. My answer to her in the moment, and this is true, is that this is just the flowering of what was sown before. Every one of those villains, including Octavius, who rushed ahead instead of taking appropriate security precautions, who rushed ahead using technology that, that he was warned these things could betray you, they all pursued what happened to them and gave them powers from a place of victimization. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't think we're in a better place where every bad guy who runs around and kills people and destroys their livelihood is some kind of victim. And, you know, it gets tossed around in storytelling circles I'm in. I don't know who originally said it. It's attributed to G.K. Chesterton. But this movie really is a, a pretty good example of if a movie, you know, a story that doesn't have a truly evil character is an evil story. Hmm. It's telling a lie about the way the world really works. Yeah. And so that's a frustration. And I, I'll say that it may be incomplete hypocrisy, but I'll say that while also maintaining it is very good for Spider-Man to do everything he can to not kill an enemy. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. But turning them all into psychological victims, basically, is a bad thing. Yeah. You want to run with that? No, I mean, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, I thought Octavius was the only one that um, had no volition because of... and. Yes, it's because of his own decisions. He did not take the precautions, as you said, and he actually lost his wife in that um, horrible as a result. Like, and and um, but uh, with the AI taking him over. And by the way, that's still it's it's humorous now, isn't it? That that's a real concern today. Yeah. Like, like what was it a few years ago? There were two programs that Google made, and um, they started talking. They were self learning. They made their own language. They had to pull the plug on them because they were communicating, hiding it from the programmers or whatever. That's nuts. Well, let me go further on this. I think that this movie actually really is putting in front of us early some really sinister seeds that are in our own soil and starting Mm -hmm. to kind of poke up. I just this week read um, excerpts from a paper where a bioethicist at a Harvard um, think tank is saying that humans should be covertly bioengineered in order to make them more moral. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, dude. And this guy is arguing the straight face. And and you know the thing he cites as deficient morality that covert bioengineering should fix? Is it transgender stuff or not transgender? Homosexual. Not stuff? homosexual, but you're on the right track. What is it? Lack of concern for global warming. Oh my gosh. So this is a Harvard think tank bioethicist who thinks that if you don't share his concerns and conclusions about global warming, that he and other powerful people in society should re-engineer you without you being aware of it. Gosh. In order to make you more like them. Imagine a government getting a hold of that and re-engineering people. Oh my gosh. You, you think about all the incentives that a materialist society would have for that, right? You, you Not only do you eliminate dissident voices, but imagine if I could bioengineer you to be less concerned about killing another human being. This is the Black Widow movie. That just come yeah. out. Like, they're spraying that stuff in their face to wake them up. Yeah. Um, so think about that scene in Tony's apartment that Peter has access to. Mm-hmm. When Octavius is kind of hooked up and can't get away, and Peter's coming to fix him. And he's screaming, don't you dare touch me. Don't you do that to me. That's the image a guy like this bioethicist is going to sell. This poor guy doesn't want this because he doesn't realize that he's not human enough and subhuman. Oh, my goodness. And, like, I really think this movie is starting to show us, like, this is where this line of thinking goes, and we're getting powerful enough to do this to people. Um, you know, so, crazy. so get ready. Yeah. I mean, that's, man, that's like a Get Out, that horror movie uh, with, who, who was it? Peel? Jordan, Jordan Peel. Yeah. I mean, the it's just creepy to think they could do that. and um, it, It's mental colonization. I mean, oh, no. you know, colonization is such a negative word in our society. But all the people who scream about it, you know, the people on their ideological side of the fence, they're doing it in the most aggressive possible fashion. Mm-hmm. So I have real, like some of that stuff reading, when I read, probably because I knew I was getting ready for this podcast, but when I was reading those excerpts, I started thinking about this movie and I'd be like, oh my gosh. This is the kind of imagery that would propagandize a people to think that that maniac at Harvard is legit, you know, justified in doing what he's what he's calling Some for. Some of the best and the brightest, huh? Yeah. My goodness. And a bioethicist, like you're not an ethic, you're not very ethical if you're talking about um, against people's wills transforming their uh, thinking just because you can't persuade them with your science, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, how about persuading, trying to persuade folks? Um, well, and the paper was aimed at, this is so important. He's not even debating if it's good to bioengineer someone <laughs> for moral ends. He's saying what we should do is do this so they don't know it's happening. He's arguing for it happening in secret. So that's like putting stuff in drinking water Literally. that transforms, goes to your brain in this particular area that decides about global warming and tells you what makes you think. You go in to get your tetanus shot updated. and Dude, that is some scary stuff. Um, and it's that therapeutic sense of the world that we can't maintain because we're always going to have someone who's a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. Someone is always going to be the embodiment of evil. We, we know evil exists, and to purge it from our midst, we're going to embody it in someone. Mm-hmm. Because we have a broken moral code, the triumph of the therapeutic has said, oh, well, the, traditionally the bad guys are actually victims. And who the actual bad guys are are the people saying there is such a thing as a bad guy. And they're going to be scapegoated and 
driven from society through bioengineering or actual violence. And it's all justified because they are the bad guys and we're the humane, compassionate ones. And I mean, like all that is right there in Spider-Man saying, oh, but I really liked uh, Jamie Foxx's character before he became Electro. Yeah, yeah. He was the sweetest guy. I remember that statement. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the movie essentially argues that the power is the problem in these Mm -hmm. guys. Like the, the power... Um, or unaccountable power, they not taking a responsibility with power. And you point out earlier that neither Strange nor Peter were taking responsibility at the beginning of the movie, which I think is a great point. Um, but by the end, they are to fix it. They know they've got to deal with it. Um, and but the these characters, though, like Norman Osborn was wicked before it happened to him. Um, and so the you could argue the lizard guy wasn't that he was really trying to do something good and that it altered him. Um, but and then but the electro guy, like he just me, got powerful and decided to hurt back. Yeah, like I think he was bullied and made fun of, and he finally could do something about it. it it's like the, uh, I mean, I, I've seen it with men and women um, when they have, go through a divorce, and all of a sudden they go buck wild, you know, doing all kinds of but like things that were in their heart when they were married that they could not do. They go and do. They call it sowing wild oats for a reason. And same way with, um, I've seen it with men and women who lose a bunch of weight and then end up very promiscuous or destroy uh, their family. Yeah. And I I had a lady one time who lost a bunch of weight, started dating and living with one of her um, sons, uh, you know, older teenager, 19 years old. She was in her 40s or 50s, best friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, called the church and one asked if I'd marry him. No kidding. And no kidding. And I told her no. <laughs> told her no. Uh, and uh, anyway, I mean, you know, they're. I mean, it's not a declaration against, but it, they're in no position to get married. I hope they never did. You know, like yeah. I mean, you're talking about a 40 year old woman wanting to marry her 19 year old son. Son's best friend. Son's best friend. I thought you were saying her son became her best no, friend. No, no, no. Right. I, I mean, it's still atrocious, but if you added in incest, it would be just yeah, it was over incest, the top. But it was just, they. it's like what was in their heart, it comes out because of the position they're in now. And that's what happened with Electro. Like, um, and so to act like if you take this away, he's going to go back to being this sweet guy. Um well, no, he's not. I mean, he just he can build an electrode gun or whatever. This is why Jesus points to you know it's what's that comes out of a man that defiles him. Mm-hmm. It's by your fruit you will know them. You can see you know what's invisible inside. You can see visibly through outward actions, mm-hmm. and those are subject to misinterpretation. Miscommunication is not off the table, but that's why it's still a good rule to say what's inside is the issue. And what's inside looks very corrupt, and we're not going to deny that and treat you like you're a victim because you like torturing people who are mean to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not justice to say now that I've got power, um, I'm going to hurt you the way you hurt me when you had power. Right. Although it feels very satisfying in some sense in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the heart of that lesson that Peter learned from Uncle Ben. He learns that okay, I've been robbed by someone who I'm not willing to exercise power over. When someone exercises power over him to rob him, and instead of doing the right thing, I tell him, hey, not my problem, right? Peter learns all of this little moral thing we've just talked about, but this movie doesn't have that, so that Peter doesn't know it. 
mm-hmm. right? And yeah. it, it leads him to make worse decisions. And so, like, they're gobbledygooking up what made these stories so powerful. And so, uh, you know, I think Spider-Man was invented in, like, the 40s. Con, you know, there's just a perpetual stream of generations that connect with him as a character. Mm-hmm. You're you're monkeying with that, man. You're going to kill the, the golden goose here. Yeah. Good call. Good call. Anything else you want to talk about as far as distorted evil falls? Yeah, the, the last thing, and I won't. I'll try not to stay here too long. But um, Zendaya is the least likable love interest in the three Spider-Man franchises that were represented in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, the the one in Tobey Maguire's universe, Cl- not Claire Danes, um, Dern- Dunst, uh, Kirsten Dunst. She's much more like uh, emo. You know, like mm-hmm. she can be a little exhausting when you watch it, but she's very likable. She, uh, you know, she's just trying to make her way in a difficult world. Um, Bad family. Yeah. Right. Loves Peter, willing to sacrifice for him. Uh, going back and watching those Garfield movies. Now, I think Emma Stone is an incredible actress. I've liked her in every role. Even if I don't like the movie, I like her portrayal. Mm-hmm. Her Gwen Stacy is lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, she is unabashedly in love with Peter. She's a high achiever. She's very much part of her family and honors her father. She's deeply feminine. Like every time they present her, she's in, uh, in feminine dress. She doesn't take an aggressive posture to the world, although she's like the valedictorian of her class. It's not like she's some pushover. Mm-hmm. She is very much her own person in terms of like, I'm going to, okay, if this thing with Peter's not working, I'm going to go to England. She's lovely. And so watching those again after just watching some more of Zendaya, Zendaya is prickly. Zendaya is uh, not interested in like being visually attractive. And I say Zendaya, like her, her MJ. Right, right. Even at the end where like they're expressing their love for each other before the great reset, no pun intended, happens. Um, she, it's not Peter, I love you and you have to come find me or we'll find each other. It's not. She says, you better tell me because I figured it out once and I'll figure it out again. Like she has this very aggressive posture, even towards her love interest. Mm -hmm. She's not lovely. Now she is a beautiful young lady and I'm sure Zendaya as a person is lovely, but her MJ is in this exhausting and exhausted you know, the only way you're going to be a strong, independent woman woman is if you are a jerk to most people around you. You know, <laughs> yeah. like the only time that she's really like truly a girlfriend is when they are in very private quarters mm-hmm. and only then in, in temporary glances. You know what I'm saying? And so I don't dislike her as an actress, but watching her compared to Emma Stone, I thought, we have lost something with his <laughs> love interest here. This is not good. Uh, Maybe that's what compels him to decide. You know what? I'm good. (laughs) You just go to MIT. uh, I'll go do my own thing. But (laughs) Uh, what about uh, what about the gospel? How do you think the gospel applies? I'm sorry, I got out of track. So I thought we were talking about like the better world. Oh yeah. Okay. And uh, that would be next on deck. So the better world is what your daughter's picking up on as a train wreck, I think. Mm-hmm. The better world is everybody forgets and goes on with their own life, mm-hmm. which is not true. That's not how the the real story ends. We all end up living under Christ's reign in a new city together in this mutual endeavor of glorifying him. So mm-hmm. 
that ending is super satisfying, but that ending harkens to something I've probably belly ached about on this podcast. Peter Parker and MJ were the, basically, other than uh, Reed Richards and Sue, the only high-profile tentpole Marvel superheroes who were married. Hmm. And Marvel made a decision in the early 2000s to say, that makes Peter too old. We don't want him to be married anymore. Hmm. So they went into this storyline called Brand New Day, where Mephisto, the devil of the Marvel Universe, threatens... Uh, well, he comes with a devil's bargain for Peter. Uh, Aunt May has been shot, and she's on life support. Mm. And Mephisto tells Peter, I'll save her life, but you have to give up MJ. Not MJ won't die, but no one will remember basically the period of time y'all were together wow. as husband and wife. And it ate me alive because they, again, you want to talk about diversity and representation and showing a real world. There are lots of 20 and 30-year-olds who are married, pursuing their careers, trying to make it work. But Marvel thought that wasn't acceptable to have. And it was one of only two at the time. Mm. And Reed and Sue are all the time breaking up and you know leaving each other and all this stuff. So it disgusted me. And that's what they did. And as far as I know, Brand New Day is still main continuity in Marvel Comics. Um, it, it, you know, Peter, I think knows MJ by this point, but they're definitely not love interests and all that stuff. Mm. I hate it at the core of my being. I've not bought a Spider-Man comic since then. And I won't until they roll it back and say, this was a catastrophe. They did the same thing here. Mm -hmm. And your daughter's right. He betrayed MJ's confidence. Mm -hmm. He, uh, he betrayed Ned's confidence. Mm -hmm. He defeated the idea of a better world. He doesn't get to make that decision apart from them. Right. They get a voice in what they think is best for them. And him arbitrarily deciding, oh, I should do it this way, means he learned nothing from this entire movie. Mm -hmm. He made a singular decision that he roped um, Dr. Strange into going along with, over and against Wong's counsel, right? Mm -hmm. um, and at the end, it's supposed to be this noble sacrifice, but all he sacrificed is what they said they wanted to him. Right. Now, it, I'm not saying it doesn't have ramifications for him, but this is a bullcrap move <laughs> by Peter Parker. Yeah. It's not a noble self-sacrifice. It is an autonomous act of someone who has shown he does not have the ability to make decisions for other people well. And it's so passive as a guy. You know you love the girl. Mm -hmm. You know the girl loves you. Go get her. Yeah. Don't wait around till Christmas, months later, to start the process of wooing her. Yeah. And darn sure don't walk out uh, without her, you know, without any hope of, of wooing her in the future. It's just awful. It just turns <laughs> everything we want from good stories on its head. So the better world that is supposed to come out of this is a world nobody wants. Yeah. And I don't really even find it particularly interesting. So Peter is like... Basically, one step above a homeless guy trying to get his GED, <laughs> swinging around New York, pining for the girl he loves. I mean, great. Sign me up for that. When all he had to do was be like, I'll keep my promise. Mm -hmm. He didn't keep his promise. Yeah. Interesting. So anyway, your daughter's right. She's wise. <laughs> and she's doing better than Marvel writers are doing. Oh, she's upset. She should be. Maybe she'll be a Marvel writer one day. Yeah. Maybe she'll correct fix it. it. Yeah. Correct it. Um, 
So do you want to move to the gospel now? Yeah, man. Let's just wrap it up. I know. Yeah, yeah. I've had some hot takes on this. So I'm thinking the movie it talks about power corrupting without accountability. You know, even Spider Man's ready to revenge um, Aunt May, but he's stopped by another Spider Man. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. That's emphasized. Uh, the bad guys, once their power is taken away, they are good guys. So um, th- that's the argument. But you know, Jesus. The reason why he's so much better, right? The reason why we need him is because of his impeccability. He actually um, has ultimate power, but does not wield it for anything but his Father's glory, which his Father and Christ and the Holy Spirit, these three are one, perfect in nature, perfectly good. And so all that they ordain and do is right. And so ultimately what we what we long for, we we long for these wonderful superheroes but they constantly fail us they constantly because they're human there's these imperfections there's um what is it kinks in armor and chains and um and so we we need christ um the greatest fiction of this movie is that taking away man's power changes his heart right Mm -hmm. Uh, you you can't change someone's heart by taking their power away or an individual's Power away. Or empowering them. Right. right. That's a narrative we're sold, but this yeah. movie shows. Give them power and they'll do good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we just give victims power, they'll everything will be better. And uh, we, we've seen that. We've heard that for over a century now. And um, in many ways, we are worse off, aren't we, uh, as far as morally. And, uh, I mean, you look at how families have been destroyed over the years, right? Um, but, you know... The saying goes, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But power did not corrupt Jesus. Uh, Power does not corrupt God. Power does not uh, corrupt men. Rather, sin corrupts man. And more power often reveals more sin because Mm -hmm. they can do what they're able to do now, right? And if they had the power to do it earlier, they would have. Right. Um, But Christ is impeccable, cannot sin. You know, his desire for food, authority, and his Father's kingdoms it could not corrupt him. And the devil had to learn that the hard way, right? That he tried to tempt him with what only his father could rightfully give, and Christ refused to receive it from the devil mm-hmm. immediately. He didn't even desire it from the devil. He desired his father's perfect will. And so Jesus is better than Spider-Man that way. He's better than all men in this movie. Uh, the movie is about taking a power away to cleanse the heart, but Christ gives a new heart entirely. You know, we don't ultimately need less power. Power is not the problem. We need new hearts, and only Christ can bring it. And, um, you know, you're right about our society and critical theory. And, you know, if victims just had the power that everything would be righted. Um, But what we've seen is, is that, you know, a bully without power is a bully with power. And an immoral man or a sinful man or a sinful woman um, without power is still a sinful and often a greater, more evident sinner um, with the power. Uh, but I love the Captain America motif more so, right? That you give a good man power and he wields it for others. That's well said. You know? Yeah. And that's Christ. Man. Yeah, it is. That's exactly right. That, that capability does not determine character. And so if you give someone more capability, they're just going to express their character. I mean, it's the classic argument that has been made a million times over gun rights, right? It, you know, a bad guy with a gun does bad things with a gun. A good guy with, a gun does good things. Right. It, it's a truism that's self-evident. It, it, it's just unavoidable. Even though we spend a lot of time and energy and money trying to avoid it, ultimately it matters who the person is, not their status. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I mean, really, I think this dovetails with you. When I think about how this movie puts the gospel in front of me, I think it gives us a chance to be very thankful for the God who is. Mm-hmm. Every other God, and superheroes clearly are other gods. They're mythological creatures. They are an inadequate copy of the God who is. Mm-hmm. And so what you have with Spider-Man and uh, Doctor Strange, if you kind of see them as one unit here being the ultimate power in this movie, uh, you have something that is incredibly powerful, right? Able to alter the cosmos. And you have something that is deeply loving. You know, Holland's Spider-Man loves everybody. He's a big golden retriever, yeah, right? Yeah, he is. What you're lacking is someone who's wise. Mm-hmm. And so you see what happens when you get this 20, you know, two-thirds God. But what we have, as you've already said, in Jesus Christ is someone who is all-powerful, always oriented to what is good for others, and all-wise to accomplish his ends skillfully. And so that, I mean, Jesus is what people are always looking for. I mean, mm-hmm. as simple as that, Amen. he is what they are always looking for. And like Augustine said, you're going to be restless until you rest in him because mm-hmm. he's the only one who is what we need. Amen. Yeah. And watching these superhero movies, as much as I love them, it just remi- it reminds me of that. Mm-hmm. And a good movie should, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to your point, he had all power. He had his all power. But because his character is unassailable, it always works out well that he has all powerful. There's nobody in the world we would want to have his power. Right. Um, the only other, option is someone evil, right? Yeah, exactly. Something much less that's going to go sideways. So, Amen. Praise the Lord for being the Lord. Amen. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for hanging with us in another episode. We hope you enjoyed this review of Spider-Man No Way Home. We love to hear from you. Uh, fire back. You know, as I mentioned already, there's pe- plenty of people out there who are happy to do that in vile and antagonistic ways. We'd love <laughs> to hear from those who aren't doing it. And uh doesn't make us victims. We're thankful that people are listening. We're thankful for you listening. And I always want to engage with you on that. So you can find us at PCCDPod on Twitter. Most social media platforms, let us know what you think. Um, Jared, where can people find you out there on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. Um, Check out my book, uh, The Pop Culture Parent, where the principles that we use for this podcast, we lay them out in detail in that book. And uh, if you read it, let me know what you think about it. I hope you enjoy it, and I would love to hear from you. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great book. You gotta get a copy if you haven't got one already. Maybe we gotta buy one and do a giveaway on here, man. Just great. get some listener uh, a copy of it. All right, I'm not sure what we're up for next, but we've got some good options. If I can figure out how to get Jared to see American Underdog, maybe I can get him to review that. Yeah, great. Um, but we'll be back soon with Pop Culture Corum Deo. Another interview, another movie review, another book review. We'll do something because you guys know that uh, we want to help in any way we can. And until we are back with you. Uh, On your podcast app, this is Jeff Wright for Dr. Jared Moore, reminding you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God. Because you are. We'll talk to you all next time.